Where I live, I live up in Pompano, and when we first moved into our house, I had the world's greatest neighbor, uh, this guy named Bob. He was uh, so courteous, so conscientious that he would do things such as uh, before he mowed the lawn, okay, or before he would uh, start his boat engine, which he kept his boat in the side yard so he might be cleaning it or whatever, before he would do anything of that nature, he would come to our house, knock on the door very gently, and make sure that our children weren't sleeping. Uh, he was a phenomenal neighbor. We have two little kids, four and two, and this was a couple years ago even then, so um, they were smaller and nap time was just absolutely essential. He would come and he would knock and he would make sure they weren't sleeping so that he wouldn't bother them. And if we were out of town, I mean, he would go you know, above and beyond looking after our house, just an amazing, amazing neighbor. Well, he sold the house about two years after we uh, lived there, and it was sold, and now is a, uh, a vacation rental. If you've lived here long enough, you know that spells doom, right? Uh, it's a vacation rental, which I'm still not entirely sure is legal uh, in my neighborhood, but nevertheless, it's a vacation rental. Um, so I live next door to a hotel now, and this was never more clear to me then when about, you know, two or three weeks into the, the sale and the, the new owner, uh, we happened upon spring break. And Fort Lauderdale and, you know, Pompano, I guess, as well, it's all kind of one area. We're known for being, at one time at least, the spring break capital of the world. Well, these people were trying to put us back on the map, all right? And it was ridiculous. I've never actually seen the movie Neighbors. I've only seen previews of it. And I don't think it's a movie I could recommend from the pulpit, even if I had seen it. Uh, but I've seen the previews, and I thought to myself, from what I understand, it looked like a, a biographical movie about my life. Uh, if you've seen Neighbors or the previews, there's a frat house that moves into like a residential neighborhood, and this like husband and wife are now living next to a frat house. Well, that was similar. I literally woke up one morning, like two in the morning, and I hear this just this shouting and this you know exuberant whatever celebration. And one of those gigantic like party buses, like charter buses, had parked on my lawn, and there was just like streams of college students running out into the house. And there's red solo cups, I'm sure full of soda and nothing else. Um, we're all over my lawn. I woke up the next day, literally, and there's like a stream, we live close to a, a Circle K, there's a stream of college students just carrying cases of beer through my lawn into the house. Uh, it was just ridiculous, totally ridiculous. Uh, and I remember like the, the juxtaposition of lifestyles being so clear to me, okay? I'm a pretty young guy. I'm not that far removed from college, right? Um, and yet this juxtaposition of lifestyles just struck me because I'm in my kid's room, which is, of course, closest to that house, unfortunately, so you can hear everything, and I'm changing a diaper, okay? So it's like goo-goo gaga time in the bedroom, right? Next door, it's Lady Gaga, right, blasting uh, at an absurd level. And I thought to myself, I go, where am I? Like, what, what has happened? Uh, and then, the icing on the cake is we get a knock on the door, okay, knock on the door. My wife and I open the door, and it's these college girls in bikinis, all right, who go, we're going to be partying, like, all week, just all week. And they go, uh, if we get too loud, don't call the cops, but here's our cell phone number, call us, okay? And we'll try to keep it down. 
And I look at April. <laughs> I go, where's Jimmy? We need to sell our house. Where's, right? I go, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, but it was just this sort of juxtaposition, right, of lifestyles that just kind of struck me. Trying to raise a family, trying to change a diaper, and it's, you know, chaos next door. And on top of it, just this sort of this sense of, this feeling of powerlessness, of not being able to do anything about it, really. I mean, I could call the cops, but it's like, I mean, I imagine if you're a police officer and you get a call for a party being too loud, that's got to be like low on your priority list, right? And it should be. There's more important things to take care of. And I don't want to be that guy who's calling the cops because of a loud party. It's just, you know, I felt this sense of powerlessness, this juxtaposition of lifestyles, and also I was struck by just the complete indifference of my neighbors. Just no regard for, for other people. Well, you get to the story in Luke, you get to Luke chapter 18, and these concepts of juxtaposition and powerlessness and indifference really inform the parable that Jesus tells uh, to those who are around him. And you have two characters, basically. You have the judge, who is this character where he is like, he's a, the, the quintessential fat cat, right? He holds a position of cultural respectability, Uh, He's financially well off, and because of his position as a judge in this day and age, he has incredible power at his fingertips, disposable power. And what I love that what Jesus points out, on top of these things that are his, just by nature of his position alone, he has the luxury, if you want to think of it that way, of not caring at all what people think. He says that he doesn't care about what God thinks. So it's kind of Christ's way of saying he has no moral compass. And on top of it, he doesn't care at all what man thinks of him. So he's not even inconvenienced by public opinion. He is going to do whatever he feels like doing. So the judge, in other words, is basically like the worst kind of powerful. He has his cake and he eats it too. And he takes your cake and eats it. Because he can, right? So you have this figure, this quintessential fat cat. Power at his fingertips. And all of this is juxtaposed or contrasted with the other character in the story. The widow. And the widow is supposed to represent the judge's complete opposite. His antithesis. She is the quintessential loser in the story. The quintessential example of powerlessness. She finds herself in a position of cultural disrespectability, financial ruin, and completely and utterly powerless. You see, a widow in this day and age is especially uh, difficult, especially grievous for a woman to fall into. Next to barrenness, uh, in, this, in this society, it is possibly the worst fate. It's a patriarchal society uh, where you are greatly dependent upon the male figure in the family. So you're in a point of financial ruin. You're outcasted. You're pushed to the margins. You're not thought of oftentimes in your needs. And if you're an elderly widow on top of that, you're, you're in double trouble because you don't even have the prospects of remarrying, which would be one of your ways out of this position of powerlessness. This is why later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will, in a few of his letters, talk about the importance of the church caring for widows, 
They were one of the marginalized of their day. And so things like homelessness and desperation and disadvantage and marginalization would have been this widow's potential fate. So for the purposes of Christ's story, you have this kind of contrasting uh, of characters. The quintessential winner of his day, the judge and his powerfulness, contrasted with the quintessential uh, loser, this widow, okay, and her powerlessness. And so not surprisingly, what we see in this story is the widow comes before this judge and she asks for something that she's probably been denied for quite some time in her marginalization. She asks for justice. She says, give me justice against my adversary. And whatever kind of justice she's seeking, perhaps she was financially cheated or physically assaulted or robbed of her belongings, or maybe she just wants to get a a good night's sleep and wants the city of Pompano to uh, rewrite their bylaws, right? Whatever it is, we're not told. We're not told specifically, but we're told that in sort of expected fashion, this corrupt and, and cavalier judge decides it's not worth his time. It's not worth his time to, to meddle in the affairs of this sort of powerless person. I mean, what would be to his advantage? She can't pull any strings. Uh, she's not connected. Taking her case will not uh, improve or bolster his career. If she's brought into the courtroom, it's not as if uh, major network cameras will follow and the journalists will write up about it. She has no, no standing. And if he were to entertain her case, she's not in a position financially where she can you know, wire funds to his offshore account and perhaps sway him for a favorable ruling. And on top of it, if he was to entertain the cares of this widow, his reputation is at stake, right? I mean, he, he's, he's worked hard to build this reputation of being a calloused, cavalier uh, guy that you don't mess with. And so if he's all of a sudden you know, showing compassion, well, this might jeopardize this empire that he's built. Nice guys finish last. There's good money in being a bad guy. And the judge knows this. And so initially, he doesn't even entertain her case. But what he underestimates is the widow's resolve. See, she has nothing but time on her hands. And so the text says that she comes to him day after day after day. And at first, he has resolve of his own. He's steel-spined and he's, he's stubborn. And he will not give in to the petty requests of this powerless widow. But he draws the line when she starts interrupting his champagne lunches with the city officials. She just barges into the restaurant, dirty, filthy, pulls up a chair at the table, starts pleading her case. And he's had absolutely enough when she begins to picket the country club that he's a member of. And so the text says that he finally will entertain her case, not because he's all of a sudden found religion, not because he wants uh, an image makeover and wants to launch a PR campaign for his next election, but it says simply so the woman will leave him the heck alone. 
he will entertain her case. And he'll give her justice. Simply because she has the audacity, the utter audacity to ask. And because she has the, the, uh, the audacity to realize that even though he's a slime ball of a judge, that he can give her the verdict that she's seeking. And he can give her the peace of mind that she's after. So if you were to look, take your Bible again, look back in the text. If you look uh, at verse 1, Luke sort of tips his hand and gives us kind of like a spoiler alert uh, about what the parable is, one of the main points of the parable. He told them a parable, verse 1, to the effect they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so what we should see here is that the consistency and the confidence of our prayer life can be based upon the reality that we don't petition a corrupt um, slime ball of a judge. But when we bring the cares of our lives, whatever they might be this morning for you, when we bring the cares and the requests of our lives before God, we bring them before a judge who always has our best interests in mind and who will never calculate uh, behind the scenes in his sort of uh, social ledger what we can do for him before he will grant our requests. In fact, what we know in the gospel is that God sort of doesn't count the cost to him of anything, but always gives and gives and gives and of course gives most fully in the person of his son. And so this empowers us. We've talked now for several weeks about this identity that we have as sons and daughters of a king, now of a judge who is powerful, but in his powerfulness is also utterly compassionate to your every need. And so that should inform our lives. There's no request that we bring before God that he turns aside and thinks of as petty. And there's no request that we bring before God that he wants to first wait to see what we can do for him first. He always comes to us in our time of need. And that's tremendously empowering and tremendously um, hope-giving. And so Luke reminds us from the very beginning that this is a great story that Christ is telling us that should empower us in prayer, empower us in confidence before the very throne of God. But I think there's also here, I think there's a, to use kind of C.S. Lewis's phrase, I think there's a deeper magic, a deeper magic also at work here in this text, and it's found in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, the very last verse we read, so after telling this story, Christ leaves them with this rhetorical question. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man, so when he himself, right, comes in all of his glory... Will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So the question is, faith to believe what? Will he find what kind of faith? Faith that any time we have an enemy in our life, God will simply rule in our favor? Like this widow? Maybe. That doesn't always happen, though, does it? Think of all the, quote, uh, bad things that have happened to, quote, good people. 
faith that life for the Christian will be one continuous story of triumph over oppression? I don't know. Think of all the things that still ensnare you, ensnare me in our lives. Think of all the times in history the church has been trampled upon. Faith that whatever we perceive to be right and best for us will simply be granted by God if we just persist enough in asking for it? I don't know. Do we always know in our sinful state what is best and right for us? And what about the times when God doesn't seem to answer our prayers? Where did he go? So I think the question of when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? There's also this deeper, I think, understanding there. It's the question that ultimately separates life with God eternally and life apart from him. See, the people who will one day populate heaven, who are saved, aren't the good, shiny, uh, moral, always persisting people. Some are. But what characterizes every person who will populate heaven one day and who will enjoy God forever are those who simply acknowledge their need for him and who ask. Those who acknowledge their need, their utter dependence upon the verdict that only God the judge can give and come with nothing to show for it and yet have the audacity to ask anyways. Because you see, the widow's request, literally, the widow's request, if you you were to kind of look at the, the words and the phrasing, the widow's request is literally justify me, justify me before my adversary. And the root word there for justice, the root word for justice there is the same root that will inform the language of Paul later when he talks about justification. She says, justify me before my adversary. In other words, she comes before the judge in her losing with no questions asked. No attempts to hide, no attempts to approve upon her situation. She comes with an impossible request, the, ask, the, 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 the request to be justified, and yet she believes the impossible is possible if this judge, even in his, in his slimeball state, says so. Justify me before my adversary. So the question for all of us this morning, as we in a few minutes will approach the Lord's table, the question for you, the question for me, is, do we believe that? Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that no matter the depths of moral or spiritual loss you find yourself in, that if you come before the judge of the universe and simply ask for pardon, ask for justice, ask for a favorable ruling, it will be granted to you. A justification, an acceptance, a favor that we didn't earn, but that Christ himself earned for us and now gives freely to all who ask, who all who come to his table with hands open, willing to do nothing but receive. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see, Luke is certainly correct, inspired by the Spirit, right, as he writes this text. And this informs our prayers. 
But the reason it informs our prayers is and the reason we can bank on God in the end of time when all accounts are settled, ultimately doing what's right for us, ultimately d- doing us justice, is because he first justified us, right, by his grace. And so we can come to him now in prayer with a confidence, knowing that he's the same judge who gave us the, the, the ruling of pardon and our salvation. And so he's trustworthy. And this is what Paul is getting at later when he says, if God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us willingly, will he not also with Christ give us all things? And so Christ is reminding his people and reminding us this morning, when he comes, will he find this faith? Because if we're honest with ourselves, as Americans, as, as 21st century people, even the very idea of really, truly, in our heart of hearts, admitting that we bring nothing to the table is so, so hard to really, truly believe. We want to believe that we bring something. And yet the gospel reminds us time and time again, not to beat us down, but to actually free us, that we bring nothing to the table. Yeah, that's okay, because the only prerequisite is to bring nothing to the table and have the audacity to ask for everything and knowing that it will be granted by faith because of what Christ the Son has done. And the reason I'm so emphatic about this is because, again, structure is key here. Structure is key to the text. And so if you were to keep reading, and we won't do that for time's sake, but if you were to keep reading, on the heels of this question... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? On the heels of this question, if you kept reading into Luke 18, you meet several characters. The first you meet, if you look in your Bible, are the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this reinforces the parable that Christ just told. The Pharisee and the tax collector, both coming to the temple to pray, and yet the Pharisee comes and boasts of his record, boasts of his goodness and his, and his prestige and privilege. He is the quintessential religious person. And then you have the tax collector who is corrupt, who is sinful, who steals from his own people, who is literally like a walking curse word, okay? You don't want to be a tax collector. That is a name you don't want. And yet he comes with nothing but acknowledgement of his sin, And he won't even look to heaven, but he beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the man who goes home justified. And after that story, you have Christ encountering little children. And who are children in this day and age? Another category of losers. They have nothing to show for anything. They might not even make it to adolescence in their lifespan. And yet they're the ones who Christ says, don't turn them away, but bring them to me. These are who my kingdom is predicated upon. People who come with childlike faith. And then the last story that you would get uh, in that little section is the rich young ruler, who again is another winner in his day. The epitome of winning. He has it all. The new car, the new house, the waterfront property, the fat bank account. He's got it all. But in having everything, he misses his need. Misses his need. And so the question this morning, again, as we will approach the table in just a moment, is do we dare to believe that like the widow, like the tax collector, like the children, 
we're actually in worse shape than we think. And without the favorable ruling of the judge of the universe, we're in trouble. But thanks be to God that if we simply come to him in a posture of humility and asking, he will never turn us away. But he always gives us his abundant grace and forgiveness in the kingdom of his glorious son. And because of that, we can trust him with everything that we need.